For those of you who are familiar with the way that the teachings of the Buddha are often organized and presented, you know that often it's organized into a number of different lists. You know, five of this and ten of this and four of the other and a few eights thrown in and sixes. And the reason for this is very simple, that in the time of the Buddha, it being an oral tradition, that this way of of putting things together in lists was actually the easiest way for people to remember what was being taught. What you see, if any of you ever look at the discourses, what you see in these lists is that they are ways of bringing together uh, a range of qualities in, in a kind of formula. It's a sort of roadmap. Many of the qualities that will appear in one list you will find in another list. But in reality, if you contemplate most of these lists carefully, you see that each one of them, most of them are in themselves a kind of map of awakening, a map of cultivation. So over the course of this retreat, uh, the Dharma talks that we give are actually going to be dedicated to one of these lists. Now, in Sanskrit, there appears a word that many of you will be familiar with, of the bodhisattva. And the bodhisattva is a term, a title, for someone who has two dedications. One is the dedication to awaken to really understand the same liberation, the same freedom that the Buddha understood. And the other dedication is to act for the benefit of all beings. And this is a a pathway uh, found within the earliest texts. And in many ways, it's a pathway or a combination of dedications that I think is quite radical because it essentially says that our deepest happiness and our deepest freedom is truly connected with the deepest happiness and freedom of all beings. Now there are ten qualities that are found within the kind of description of a bodhisattva that brings the aspiration of a bodhisattva to fulfillment. And these qualities, or this particular map of awakening, the qualities are referred to as paramis, or paramitas. They are qualities that ennoble our hearts and our lives. Sometimes they're described as perfections, although that can be a little bit of a scary word, and we need to understand clearly how it's used. But these qualities are both pathways of development and they are actually fruitions and embodiments and realizations of insight. And if I could share with you the, the kind of basic formula that describes this path of development... One longing to live a noble life and liberation of the heart commits himself to the welfare of all living beings, not tolerating, not, tolerating, not tolerating the suffering of any living being, dedicated to the enduring happiness of all and holding all beings equally. They are generous to all, so that they may be happy, not considering whether they are worthy or not. They commit to love and non-harming. They practice thus integrity. In order to bring integrity to perfection, they train themselves in renunciation. In order to understand what is beneficial and what is harmful, 
they cultivate wisdom. For the sake of the welfare and happiness of all, they constantly exert energy. Though heroic in their energy, they are nevertheless full of forbearance for the manifold failings of beings. They are truthful. Once they have promised to give or do something, they uphold their commitments. With unshakable resolution, they work for the welfare and happiness of all. With unshakable kindness, they are helpful to all. Pervaded with equanimity, they do not expect anything in return, but live with an unshakable freedom of heart beyond the reach of all conditions. So this is the essential formula, and it's a formula that is actually not separate from what we are doing here. It's a formula that is not disconnected in any way from the pathway that we are all endeavoring to walk. I think it is very important to be clear that the Buddha described awakening as the essence and the heartwood of a noble life. And he said that we do not walk this path and we do not practice in the service of self-improvement or for attaining particular states or experiences, that we don't undertake this journey just to become more concentrated, but actually to come to know this unshakable liberation of being. And when the Buddha speaks of awakening, he does not speak about it as an experience, but as a very profound and radical lived understanding that has the power to bring a very natural dignity and authenticity and authority and compassion to our lives. Understanding what torment and struggle is, understanding its causes, understanding its ending, deeply and experientially, moment to moment, learning to unbind our hearts. This is actually the way to the transformation, not only of our inner world, but in reality, the very shape of our lives. The Buddha did put it very clearly that in learning to bring greed, hatred, and delusion to an end, it is also a means of ending confusion and agitation and fear and alienation and a means of coming to realize for ourselves the freedom and the ease and the openness and the creativity that are the very very hallmarks of an awakened life. I think it is very important to speak about this at the beginning of a retreat because this is the landscape. This is the overview of the path that we are actually asked to envisage for ourselves. It is what gives meaning, it gives what, what gives context for what we're actually doing here on our cushions and on our walking paths. We can come into this environment like we can come into many environments in our life with stories of unworthiness, stories of incapacity, stories of doubt in ourselves. But it's so important to understand that these are not obstacles to awakening. These stories, they don't disbar us from somehow the very deepest realizations of this path. Because these stories too can be liberated. I think what the Buddha really invited us to do was for each one of us to begin to establish 
our own dialogue with awakening. To really ask what that means for us. And to ask of ourselves whether we can really consider that possibility. What we do here in our sittings and our walkings, it's very important that we don't lose sight of what it is all in the service of. In learning to unbind our hearts. The Buddha very much placed this possibility of, a, of awakening not in some esoteric domain. In fact, this is a way that the Buddha was so radical in his time. Because he actually placed this possibility of awakening in the very classroom of our lives. It's about the lessons we learn. The lessons we do learn moment to moment. And I think there is a value in posing that question to ourselves. What really have we learned today? What have we understood today? Through contemplating the classroom uh, of our own hearts, our own lives and our bodies. I think that one of the most important learnings is the understanding of patterns. It's almost understanding that if we practice confusion, we will indeed beget more confusion. That shouldn't surprise us, should it? That if we live a life of fear, that fear will deepen. That if we practice doubt, and there are very real ways of practicing doubt, that it will become the shape of our mind. It's also true that if we practice kindness and compassion, they will deepen. And a very, I think a very alive, a very dynamic question to bring into our retreat is, is An open question. But how do we practice freedom? And how do we practice limitation or confinement? And this is a very real question. This is a very applied question. The Buddha did not really make hierarchies of awakening. Um... He really encouraged people to ask of themselves the the very same questions that he found himself asking inwardly in his own life. Asking what is torment, confusion, struggle? What is its cause? What is its cause? What is the path to the end of confusion and struggle? What is the nature of freedom, of serenity, of balance? To know this for ourselves, I think to really absorb these questions and that kind of investigation, because it's not an intellectual investigation, it's something that is very experiential. I think to undertake that kind of investigation for ourselves we actually do exactly what we're doing here. We learn how to take our seat. We learn how to plant our feet. We learn what it is to look carefully at the ways of our own minds and hearts, to learn moment to moment what it is to be our own healers and what it is to inhabit our lives with integrity and with kindness and with investigation. One of my favorite sayings from the Dhammapada, one of the earliest texts of the Buddha, it says, All experience is led by mind, made by mind, preceded by mind. With our thoughts we make the world, that all that we are, arises with our thoughts. 
Think about how that was for you today. We see this more and more clearly as some of the clouds begin to lift. The way in which our life, moment to moment, so so deeply reflects our state of mind. Today, if you felt aversion, resistant, you will probably have noticed that things don't look too well around you. In fact, we have a capacity to see only that which is imperfect. You will have noticed today if you felt anxious, how many things seemingly could go wrong, how many things there are to worry about. The teaching is very clear that we cannot control all of the conditions of our life. Lovely and unlovely people will come into our world. We may have sun, we may have rain. Our bodies will change in sometimes in ways that are hard to accept. We will meet disappointment and we will meet joy. Much of this we cannot alter. We cannot control the world of conditions. But the changes that really do lie in our own hands and in our own hearts are the changes and the shifts and the transformations in the ways that we hold all of this. How we respond to all of this. How we embrace this only life we can live. This is what lies in our hands. The Buddha never described these understandings, in fact, never described awakening as, you know, some kind of accident or territory reserved for a select few. Spoke as awakening as a path and to qualify for awakening and to qualify for this path, we already have everything we need. Isn't that wonderful? We have a body, we have a heart, we have a mind. Sufficient. But there is something else too. Because the path is really brought to fruition by our willingness and our sincerity and our dedication. In describing this path of awakening that we cultivate, The Buddha spoke about four foundations, not the four foundations of mindfulness. This is another list of four. And he spoke about these four foundations as if they are the four limbs of one body. The first of these foundations is, in Pali, the word is dana, freely giving. The second of these foundations in Pali is sila the whole world of integrity, of ethics. The third of these foundations is samadhi, the whole world of meditative development, we would say. And the fourth of these foundations is in Pali, panya, or insight, or wisdom. Now these four foundations, or these four limbs, we might say, are not separate. They are cooperating moment to moment. They rely upon one another. They strengthen one another just as our arms cannot be separated from the rest of our bodies. So this evening I want to reflect on the first two of these limbs which are the first two of the paramis. The first two of the noble qualities or the perfections of what is described often as the path of the bodhisattva. The paramis of dana and the paramis of sila. You know, recently I I gave a talk at one of my local (laughs) sitting groups. And they told me that they'd spent the last year on a weekly basis dedicating themselves to studying and to contemplating 
dana, freely giving, and ethics. And I, I felt so delighted because what I often encounter, I think, in, in sometimes in, in the West is the feeling again that dana and sila are somehow again the poor cousins of wisdom and the poor cousins of insight. And people kind of reckon if I've got a list of five, ethic, five ethical precepts and do my best to live by them, I've kind of understood all of this. You know, now I'm getting on to the real stuff of meditation and insight. But the Buddha certainly never presented these first two paramis in that way at all. In fact, the Buddha once you know, used the metaphor that if a tree is to grow upright and strong, its roots need to be deeply planted. So for those of you who are experienced in this pathway, I would really appreciate it if your eyes didn't glaze over at this point as I talk about Dana and Sila. There may be something of an invitation here uh, for this to be a more, more of an investigation. Let's talk about Dana. The first foundation of the path. Buddha put it very clearly, an indispensable foundation of the path. That it is dana, this freely giving, that sets the climate, creates the soil in which the seeds of awakening are planted, in which they thrive, and in which they flourish. My favorite way of talking about dana, freely giving, is to describe dana as an act of fearless freedom. Born of a mind and a heart that clings to nothing. That dana is, in a deepest sense, the most natural expression of a heart that rests so firmly and clearly in the knowing of an inwardly generated sense of sufficiency in which all sense of lack has come to an end. Now, you know, you walk around meditation centers and you see all kinds of signs about dana, you know, meal dana and dana for this and dana for that. And it's very easy to kind of think of dana as a financial transaction. But in its deepest meaning, dana was always presented as a path of insight and a practice of freedom. The Buddha is so clear in teaching that to hold on to anything at all in this life, to cling to anything at all, to be preoccupied with the past, to be invested in the future, to cling to opinions, to cling to a sense of my space, to cling to anything as me, as mine, as belonging to me, as who I am, He said, this is to instantly suffer. You could check that out in your own experience. (laughs) He said, this is the way of living a life of indebtedness. That what we cling to, we are indebted to. And, And this concept of indebtedness actually features very strongly in the teaching of the Buddha. He doesn't talk about indebtedness as material debt, but he uses that metaphor. Because he says, imagine, or you may have experienced what it's like to be financially in debt, the way that the mind contracts around it, the anxiety, the sense of burden, the sense of worry about the future, often the sense of fear. And then the Buddha would say, imagine what it would be like to be able to repay all of those debts what that would feel like. And it it asks us to imagine the sense of relief, the sense of freedom and the sense of ease. And so when the Buddha speaks about indebtedness in this pathway, he's not talking about financial indebtedness, but emotional and psychological indebtedness that is often created through clinging. And if we really want to know what we're indebted to, just look at what our mind keeps returning to. 
what we don't feel that we're, we're able to, to lay down or to put down or to let go of. So the Buddha, in, in, in teaching about dana and teaching about non-clinging, is actually teaching about freedom. He's teaching about the freedom from that sense of emotional and psychological indebtedness, which really creates this world of me, of mine, of who I am, and what belongs to me. I think it is very important, you know, to bring into this practice this this kind of vitality of investigation. And, you know, to, to feel an inner encouragement in our day, to be mindful of the energetic movement of clinging, because it is so energetic. Have you ever noticed it? You know, the energetic movement of contractedness, which is the very nature of clinging. Whether we contract around, you know, my cushion or, you know, my my thought pattern or my lunch or my seat in the dining room. It's a big one. You know, just feel that nature of contractedness. That is what clinging feels like. And since its effect how it often brings about that inner sense of of unease, of unhappiness. I think we're also so encouraged in this practice to be so mindful of those moments when that energetic movement of clinging, which is actually often a movement of fear, is actually not happening. When it's not happening. That's really important to notice. You know, we don't go through our day clinging and grasping every single moment. I think we would die if we did. There are many moments when that's not happening. When there's a genuine sense of generosity, of spaciousness, when we don't feel afraid of loss, when we're not defining ourselves by what we've clung to, when we're not defending. And we see that those moments too have a certain taste Those moments also have a certain flavor of contentment, of ease, of acceptance, and indeed of happiness. I have a colleague, a friend, who's a professor in a university near where I live, and and he works in the psychology department, and, and he said there's two teams in the psychology department in different kind of ends of the building and one each team has their own kitchen and he says in the other team he says you open the fridge and you're terrified immediately because everything has a sign on it don't touch this is mine don't even think about it hands off there's even i have to say a picture of a hawk with beady eyes and talons that's been posted on the cupboard door over the fridge and he says that team is an utterly miserable team he said they are actually very unhappy it's the kind of climate of how they work together he says and they he feels fortunate in the kitchen that he is the team he works in you know people bring cookies they bring milk to share. You know, they bring tea bags, you know. They bring dessert. And they, he says there's a sense of, of abundance, actually, of, but of generosity. And he says that is the kind of climate that permeates how they work together. And I, I thought it was such a beautiful metaphor because I, I thought it was like we could really translate that into our lives, you know. What kind of kitchen do I live in? kind of kitchen do I make my home in moment to moment? And the other part of that is realizing maybe we can choose. Maybe we can choose. Moments of closing, moments of opening, they can seem so unpredictable. But what the Buddha is really suggests in the whole of his teaching, I think it's a great gift of this teaching, is actually to, to, take our, to take bewilderment out of our life. To take this sense of helplessness 
and being mystified out of our life. Because he says clinging is not a terminal condition. It's not a life sentence. That what we practice, we become. And that dana, the practice of dana, freely giving of non-clinging, is a path, it's a practice. It's a way that we care for our own well-being. It is the way that we care for the well-being, actually, of our world, of all of those around us. It's a practice that requires effort and dedication. <coughs> Again, in the Dhammapada, is a wonderful saying that says, it's very easy to do things that are harmful to oneself. It is far more difficult to do that which is beneficial to oneself. And if we can have a sense of how clinging and grasping is actually harmful to our well-being and how non-clinging and non-grasping is beneficial. It's a cultivation of a heart without boundaries. It's an act of kindness and compassion. It's actually no accident that the Buddha really enshrined dana as the first pillar of awakening. If you look at the early monastic life, you see the way that that was actually embodied, that the way that the Buddha ensured that nuns and monks every day would have to go out on their arms round, ensuring their interconnectedness, ensuring actually an acknowledged dependency on the world around them for their survival. This is not, of course, just a historical tradition. This is just as true in monastic life today. You know, if you go into a, you know, basic monastic rules are you're allowed to have eight possessions. You know, so you don't go into the kind of room of a nun and find it filled with, you know, souvenir vacation, you know, vacation souvenirs and knickknacks and, you know, childhood, <laughs> childhood memories. It's pretty stark, actually. You don't look and find a wardrobe filled of unworn clothes. Actually, wardrobes are not a problem if you're a nun, you know. But actually, this is not a statement of deprivation. It's a statement of trust. It's a statement of a commitment to embracing the truth of uncertainty, part of all of our lives. It's a commitment to contentment with what is and a commitment actually to really beginning to nurture that inwardly generated sufficiency because we we probably all acknowledge how a sense of lack can govern our lives, can drive our lives, reaching and searching outside of ourselves for what we feel we don't have inwardly. And, you know, this teaching is so clear. There is not enough in the world to answer a sense of lack. That the true answer to a sense of lack actually lies within our own hearts. Dana is not a noun, it is a verb. It's a verb, knowing that our inclining our hearts towards opening. It's not about opening our wallets. It's about inclining our hearts to non-holding, non-grasping, countering the tendency towards withholding. Nor is dana something only that is extended outwardly. It is actually what creates an inner climate of heart and mind in which we can flourish. How generous are you to yourself? How ungenerous? How are we generous towards ourselves with appreciation, with honoring, with respecting? How ungenerous we can be at times with judgment, with blame, with comparing. This too is a practice that we learn to incline our hearts towards inner generosity. There's a near enemy towards dana and generosity. It's a kind of shadow, the shadow side. And and I think it takes the form of of self-sacrifice and self-diminishment. And you know what? Historically for women, 
self-sacrifice, self-diminishment, were pretty much applauded as virtues. And actually, perhaps even today, too, that someone else is more important than yourself, more important to care for others than to care for your own well-being. Okay to sacrifice what is important for you in order to uphold something that is important to another. And sometimes that kind of, of way of giving is truly al- altruistic and sincere and genuine. And sometimes it, it's an expression of something else which is not so helpful. And the Pali word for this is mana. It translates, it translates very weirdly as conceit of self. But conceit of self is often spoken about in three ways, of seeing ourselves as better, more superior, more worthy than another, seeing ourselves as basically being the same as everybody else, or seeing ourselves as somehow being less worthy than another. And sometimes this kind of way of self-sacrifice, this kind of way of self-diminishment, I actually think can be a manifestation of that kind of ideology and that kind of belief system. There is no dana without insight. It's an attitudinal commitment. Um, it's the way that allows us to move from fearfulness and the language of I and you very much to the language of us in which the whole idea of being more or less worthy, less good, you know, or, or more, you know, more imperfect, this kind of language makes no sense anymore. We are learning with dana, inwardly offered, outwardly offered, to release this very painful, narrow world defined by me and mine, and to cultivate that inwardly generated sense of sufficiency. Each one of us actually sits underneath our own Bodhi trees. You know, we meet our own demons. And we can do, just like the Buddha did in his own journey, in those moments of doubt, those moments of holding, those moments of closing down, just be able to reach out and to touch the ground. And to actually know, as the Buddha did in his time, that the very earth bears witness to our own sense of capacity. The commitment of the Bodhisattva, it's it's often talked about in different ways, but this is one of them. Suffering beings are numberless, I vow to liberate them all. Attachment is inexhaustible, I vow to release it. The gates to freedom are numberless, I vow to master them all. The ways of awakening are many, I vow to realize them all. But there's another part of this formula that goes like this. May I be a guardian for those who need protection, a guide for those on the path, a boat, a raft, a bridge, for those who wish to cross the flood. May I be a lamp in the darkness, a resting place for the weary, a healing medicine for all who are sick. For the boundless multitudes of living beings, may I bring sustenance and awakening, enduring like the earth and the sky until all beings are freed from sorrow and all are awakened. Which actually brings me to the second foundation and the second parami, which is actually this this commitment to integrity, this path of sila. Uh, Last night, Narayan spoke about the five ethical trainings in the beginning of a retreat. And on one level, when we hear this, it can sound kind of behavioral. And on one level, it is, because, you know, you could imagine how our world would be if all beings in this world, you know, really made a commitment just to just one of those ethical trainings. 
So on one level, they are behavioral. They are actually create what creates a, a, a refuge, a place of safety for us. And yet, as trainings, these guidelines, of course, have much more to do with really seeing what is going on in our own minds and hearts. You know, and a friend of mine, I very much respect what he said once, that if, if, if cultivating ethics doesn't make you uncomfortable, you actually haven't understood the training. Because ethics are really to do, are put in place to counter the tendencies of greed and hatred. To counter the tendencies of ill will and craving. Because if we can really acknowledge that all unethical actions, they're often not intentional, often they are rooted in greed, hatred and delusion. It's a kind of universal principle that has many different ways of manifesting itself. I mean, think of this. If we only thought of this behavior, well, it's not that hard, is it? I mean, we can all go a week without killing each other. You know, we, can, we can go for a week without ransacking anybody's room or you know, getting drunk or you know, telling huge lies. I'm sure we can all manage this for a week. But actually, it doesn't quite cover the landscape, does it? <laughs> There's quite a lot of scope for a lot, lot else going on in our minds. Can, can we all go for a week without having a single thought of ill will? Anybody? <laughs> Just think of that one. Can we all go for a week, like not not uh, trying to uh, free of, of craving? <coughs> Doubt it. So part of this is restraint, but the restraint part is set in place so that we can look more deeply, not as a kind of end in itself, but so that we can actually look more deeply what's going on in our own hearts and minds. And the ethical guidelines are not about moral certainties. It's really good to get that one out of the way. It's not about right and wrong and good and bad. Many often our ethical choices live in the gray areas. Despite the call of all spiritual traditions over centuries, for us to live our lives with integrity and with compassion, human beings continue to have a remarkable capacity to inflict misery upon each other and indeed upon themselves. It's so habitual, isn't it? It's easy to feel hopeless, it's easy to feel helpless, excuse me, even to feel cynical. Because we know we can't actually change the heart and mind of another. The only heart and mind that we can truly transform is our own. But that makes a difference. We should never feel that that doesn't make a difference. Each one of us leaves a footprint in this life with all of our thoughts, our words, our acts. They can be rooted in a very deep sense of kindness and compassion, which is really what ethics is all about. Actually, often the Buddha described integrity as thoughts, acts, and words of metta, of kindness. Our footprint can be rooted in kindness and compassion, intentionality, and our footprint can also be rooted in, in greed and in hatred and confusion and struggle. It is no surprise, again, that this is the second parami, the deepest foundation of awakening, because it asks us to look more moment to moment what really is guiding our thoughts, what really is guiding. And what we do see is that mostly... Acts of unkindness, acts of harshness, acts of cruelty, 
these are the moments actually that I really were most impulsive, most heedless. So Greek, I think it was a Greek philosopher, says we can so easily dance through life like puppets on the ends of the strings of our impulses. What we really see in this practice moment to moment is really the very work of mindfulness is to move from unconsciousness to consciousness, to move from heedlessness to remembering, to, to remove, move from the world of impulse to the world of intentionality. And that is a moment-to-moment pathway. It is about the kind of footprint we leave not only in the world, but the kind of footprint we leave in our own hearts. Because we really see that the moments of heedlessness, the moments of impulsiveness, think of the residues that they leave behind. If only I hadn't done this, or I wish I'd done this, if only I hadn't said that. You know, and the Buddha often described freedom, described liberation as a freedom from residues. Integrity rests upon intention. It rests upon intention and a willingness to keep exploring, keep investigating. You know, it's so easy to think, you know, uh, it's almost easier to go into moral certainties, isn't it? Right and wrong and good and bad than to truly investigate. And moral, I think moral certainties really don't, they always banish somebody. It might be even ourselves. Whereas I think integrity is an investigation. It never banishes anybody. It never abandons anybody. Because it's looking so deeply at those roots of greed, hatred, and delusion. It's looking so deeply at the challenges of awakening and bringing our lives into a being and embodiment of kindness and compassion. We don't always know what is right. And we can embrace that. What we can ask of ourselves is what is most compassionate in this moment and what are the consequences of that. We can know for ourselves when, when the kind of energies of greed and hatred are really pushing us and when the energies of kindness and compassion are more present. And, you know, it's not all about intention. For sure, intention is really, impo- really, really significant. Sometimes it's said the whole of this path rests upon the head of the pin of intention. But it's not all only about intention. It's actually about looking also at consequences. You know, because sometimes we can feel that our intentions are fantastic. The consequences aren't always. You know, I really want to tell you what's wrong with you. You know, my intention's really to help you. The consequences might be really hurtful. Hmm? It is such an ongoing investigation. In, in the Dhammapada, it is, it is also said, better than a thousand careless words is one single word that brings peace. Better than a hundred years lived in heedlessness without contemplation is one single day lived in wisdom and deep contemplation. Better than a hundred years lived in confusion is a single day lived with courage and wise intention. The paramis bringing them to fulfillment may seem like a very big ask. They may feel almost impossible. We could make our home there, in that sense of impossibility. Or we could also make our home in a genuine sense of possibility, of those real questions of what are we cultivating in this moment? What are we practicing in this moment, knowing we are always practicing something? What are we bringing into being in this moment? What are our hearts dedicated to? This is the invitation of the path. It's the invitation of awakening. It is true. It takes much energy. It feels very hard. But you know, it is much harder on ourselves to live with heedlessness and forgetfulness. This is a way in which we can actually be so wounding of ourselves. 
These are the first two paramis. They are genuine practices in this retreat. Freely giving, not withholding, opening, cultivating a sense of inner sufficiency, integrity rooted in kindness, rooted in compassion, rooted in non-harming, rooting in protecting. These are what actually allow us really to take our place in the family of all beings, the language of us. And I want to end again just with reading you the formula that I began with. One longing to live a noble life and know the liberation of the heart commits themselves to the welfare of all beings, not tolerating the suffering of any living being, dedicated to the enduring happiness of all and holding all beings equally. They are generous to all so that they may be happy, not considering whether they are worthy or not. In a commitment to love and non-harming, they practice integrity. In order to bring integrity to perfection, they train themselves in renunciation. In order to understand what is beneficial and what is harmful, they cultivate wisdom. For the sake of the welfare and the happiness of all, they constantly exert energy. Though heroic in their energy, they are nevertheless full of forbearance for the manifold failings of beings. They are truthful. Once they have promised to give or do something, they uphold their commitments. With unshakable resolution, they work and practice for the welfare and happiness of all. With unshakable kindness, they are helpful to all. Pervaded with equanimity, they do not expect anything in return but live with an unshakable freedom beyond the reach of all conditions. If we take just a moment quietly to sit together. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.